And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I am very excited about this podcast because I'm actually going to talk about a couple of things. In fact, uh, let's call it three things. First of all, I'm going to talk about uh, and share a number of the comments and then comment on those comments that came to the Market Watch site after reading our article, Why Picking Stocks is Only Slightly Better Than Playing the Lottery. And this is about the Bessenbinder study that shows that over the long run that most stocks actually performed Uh, about the same as T-bills over the long run. More on that in just a minute. I'm also going to uh, talk about the results for the first six months of this year. There are some things that happened that uh, are indicative about the, uh, the things that go on normally in the market, how things can change so quickly. Uh, And I'm also going to talk about the long-term results including comparing the results of Vanguard and DFA and the average fund in those same categories. Plus, and it really has to do with that same study of uh, 15 years and how the average fund did, I'm going to talk a little about survivorship bias so that when you see the average return of a mutual fund asset class. I want you to know how different the actual return likely was compared to what they report today. So I'm going to start with uh, with my responses to a number of these comments from this why picking stocks is only slightly better than playing the lottery. Now, first of all, obviously, I don't for one second think that if you pick a stock and put your money in that stock, that it's only slightly better than playing the lottery. But when you see what I was really trying, the point I was trying to make will become clearer in a minute. But to begin with, those of you who read that title and then thought, oh, my God, what's <laughs> what's happening to Paul? Is he going nuts? No, maybe Paul has a sense of humor. <laughs> anyway, let me let me uh, uh, share this this information uh, before I, I, I share their comments, the readers comments. I just want to make sure that we understand what that study, the Bessem Binder study, was about. Because the, 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 the conclusion was that over the last period ending 2015, starting in 1926, that most of the companies, in fact, almost all of the companies, when compared uh, to T-bills, made about the same return. Now, I shouldn't say all those companies. Let's say that we looked at the the best performing 96% of all stocks. Well, forget it. Uh, 
let's 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 pretend we looked at the not just the best performance but the performance that represents all of the 96% of these companies and here's what Bessenbinder and his cohorts found out that the average return of those stocks the 96% of all stocks that came public since 1926 the average return was the same almost as T-bills, U.S. government guaranteed T-bills, which, by the way, over the 1926 to uh, uh, 2015 period, I think made about a 4% compound rate of return. So how could it be uh, that, that that many companies perform so poorly? Well, you got to be careful because let's say there were only two companies that made up the universe that we were going to look at, and one went up 6%, and the other one went down to nothing, lost all of its money. If you average those two, uh, there would have been about a, a, a 3% return. That doesn't mean that the stock that made 6% didn't have a decent return, nowhere close to the 10% the market got. But that return being the same as T-bills takes into consideration that a lot of companies failed, while a lot of companies made money but didn't make as much as T-bills, and a lot of other companies made better than T-bills, but they weren't outstanding. And it was that less than 4% outstanding performance. And of course, we wouldn't know ahead of time which those were going to be, but it was that approximately almost 4% that was responsible for the majority of the profit, uh, that, that 10% we so famously know. I might mention that there were some 25,782 stocks in the portfolio over, over that long period of time. And there were some 3,028 of those companies, public companies, that lost everything. Now, some of them had a chance to make a lot of money and distribute a lot of money to the shareholders, like General Motors. Remember, years ago, the old saying was, as General Motors goes, so goes America. It was considered kind of almost the backbone of our economy. And of course, when things were going well, people bought cars, and when they weren't, they didn't. It was not a necessity uh, like food would have been, or alcohol would have been. So GM, interestingly enough, paid out billions and billions, 300 and some billion dollars, I think it was, in dividends. But what eventually happened to the company? It went into bankruptcy. Now, in the study, it does get credit for all of those dividend distributions. That money went to society. On the other hand, the, the capital value of the company eventually goes basically to nothing. So, 
that, that that's fair. And the, but the problem is, if somebody took all the dividends and reinvested all the dividends back into General Motors, the end result is that you lost everything. Which is one reason why I actually, instead of instead of somebody doing a drip plan where they put a little money into an individual company and then when the dividends are paid, it goes back to that original company. I'm actually more comfortable if you did that with something like the S&P 500. And by the way, of those 25,782 stocks, four out of seven did not outperform T-bills. So uh, we have this picture of, of capitalism and the U.S. stock market marching forward together arm in arm. Well, it's, it's not arm in arm forever because they're falling like flies if you look more carefully. Now, to be fair, this study does include the Depression and from 1926 to the end of 1940, there were a lot of companies that didn't make it. But as far as planning for the future, it seems like we should uh, be prudent, include the possibility that along with the good times comes the bad. And certainly since 1970, We've had the bad times. We had three, when I say the bad times, I'm not talking about unemployed people or failure of companies per se. I'm saying that simply that three times the stock market fell more than 50%. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. So here are just a few of the con comments that were made about this article. Now remember, in this article, I was comparing the purchase of individual companies with the lottery. And the, the first one I'm going to share, he said the obviously right thing to say. He says the analogy is completely wrong and overblown enough to destroy his credibility. Pick any S&P stock, for example, and you will not lose 100% of your, the money you invest. However, you are almost guaranteed to lose all of the money placed in lottery tickets. Well, I will agree that uh, in his last comment that you are almost guaranteed to lose all of the money placed in lottery tickets if, for example, you win a few bucks and you reinvest it I shouldn't say reinvested. That was that was a mistake. Put it back into into lottery tickets. Probably within a matter of weeks, you'll be out of money. You will have lost it all. I think the average. There's an average in the states that offer lotteries. Not all do. The average amount of money by adults put into lottery tickets is $300. Wow. You know, that really, that really is interesting because if they put that same $300 into an IRA each year from, what, 
age 21 to 71, they're almost guaranteed if they bought the S&P 500, not guaranteed, but there's a high likelihood that they will be close to having probably half a million dollars. All right, let me let me pick up on his comment, pick any S&P stock, and you will not, in capital letters, N-O-T, lose 100% of the money you invest. Oh, au contraire. Enron, Eastern Airlines, Washington Mutual. And remember, I said that a lot of companies... They may, they, they may have made money, but they made less than the T-bill rate over the long term. Of course, you'd have to say that about General Motors. They made less than T-bill rates over the long term if you didn't include all the dividends. So I think it's got to be careful. We can never come to the conclusion that there's some way that we're not going to lose money. Remember that inflation is a way to lose money. Taxes, another way to lose money. See, here's, here's where I was, how I was thinking about the lottery. If somebody asked me about comparing the lottery to buying one stock, a share in one company, um, I would then say, the odds are you're going to do better with that share of that one company. Uh, by the way, if you looked at all companies, all companies, and looked at the monthly average return of all companies, big, small, value, growth, it was 1.14% per year. Now, that's a very high return, but that's an average Got to be careful about averages. Remember that if you make 50% one month and you lose 50% the next, the average is a zero return. But the fact is you lost about 13% a year compounded. But in this study, they talk about averages. And the average return for T-bills was about, uh, I think, 0.38 per month. But but here's the thing. If, if you compared the, uh, not thinking about what I would say to college kids, they do have a choice between putting money into lottery tickets or putting money into mutual funds. The odds of success are much, much greater with mutual funds. But then I would say, okay, there's actively, mutual, actively managed mutual funds, and there are index, passively managed mutual funds. The odds of success with index funds, much, much greater. And then there's the question of whether you put all your money in large growth companies or large value. The odds of success are much greater historically with large value. But wait a minute, what about small value? Well, there you go. The odds of success with small value, much, much greater than large value. 
And the only point I think I was trying to make with tongue-in-cheek about uh, the risk of playing the lottery between picking stocks is that as we go through the the, the the process of deciding how to invest, there are so many different choices that we have. Each one has its little advantage or disadvantage. Obviously, for a dollar, I think it's two dollars to play the the big lottery where you might win $300 million. Yes, somebody might win. That might be you. It's not impossible. It's just not likely. But it could happen. Here's another comment. If your stock picking is about the same as a lottery then you're a lousy stock picker. I've made a living off the market for 30 years, he brags. Now, maybe he wasn't bragging. I made that up that I called it bragging, but but it sounded like he had found the way. Okay, so 30 years, um, and he thinks because he's made a living off the market that their suggestion is that he's a good stock picker. But we have to be careful because a lot of people get an okay return. And in fact, over the thirty last 30 years, turns out the S&P 500, this is not a miracle, by the way, because this is kind of what we expect to see when we look at 30 years performance, compounded at 102 but large cap value compounded at 12.4. Small cap blend at 12.5. Small cap value at 14.3. And by the way, uh, this a person who responded to say that he made a living off the market for 30 years, what would it take to make a, li- a living off the market? Could you do it with 5% or 6%? Okay, how about 8%? Because over the last 30 years, long-term government bonds compounded at 84 and long-term corporate bonds compounded at 8 So, Sure. The odds of winning the lottery are a lot longer than picking a profitable stock. Um, but you can think, you know, if you, you can talk to a friend who said, I just had a great 30 years. And you may think that whatever he has to recommend is what you should be doing. I just want you to be careful because oftentimes, It turns out that what they did was not all that remarkable, but they did live in a remarkable time. Here's a comment. Buying good quality companies with steady growth that also offer dividends is the only way to retire rich. As long as you reinvest those dividends. This is assuming you are not a professional trader. Implication there, by the way, is that you could do a lot better if you were a professional trader. And then he says, or she says, but sounds like a he, ETFs, exchange-traded funds, 
are dead, dead ends due to the management fees paid and the inability to compound your returns with dividends. Well, ETFs, particularly those that replicate indexes, can cost as little as five one-hundredths of one percent. I mean, come on, that is not a dead end. And for that five one-hundredths of one percent, you get massive diversification. Smart. And the idea that you cannot compound your returns with dividends Hey, you get a dividend. You can choose to reinvest that dividend in the same thing it came out of, or you could choose to reinvest it in the S&P 500, or you could choose to spend it. But when a dividend is paid, and, and, and ETFs pay dividends, you can, in fact, reinvest it. Now, they don't do it automatically. Okay, what else did he say that, uh, oh, oh, and I love this, in caps, no billionaire made their money in ETFs, don't ever forget it, look, an ETF is just a mutual fund with a few different rules, one that makes it more tax efficient than a normal mutual fund, but they are certainly low cost, and while some people try to trade them, others may choose to buy and hold them just as they would with any mutual fund. See, this guy has got a formula, and I'm not opposed to his formula to buy good companies with steady growth. You know, that's not a bad thing to do. Now, we all know, all know that some great companies that have good, steady growth turn on us. Sears Roebuck. I remember when I came into the industry in the mid-60s, people wanted to be in Sears Roebuck because even janitors were getting becoming millionaires taking their Sears Roebuck stock that they got uh, as in their profit-sharing plan and that's all it took for them to be a multimillionaire was that Sears stock. So the idea was everybody should own Sears, whether you're a janitor or not. But this idea of using um, dividend-based stocks is fine. There are great, there are great funds that specialize in dividends. Um, by the way, uh, Vanguard has the High Yield Dividend Indexed ETF. Expense ratio, eight one-hundredths of one percent. Dividend yield, 2.95 percent. That is uh, the Vanguard High Yield Dividend Index ETF symbol, ticker symbol, V as in victory. Y, M as in mother. There are a lot of different formulas for long-term success. Uh, this investor uh, may have found one of them 
But the fact is, there are many others that have a long, long history uh, of success. And, and by the way, those dividend, those great dividend stocks, how far did they go down in the 73 and 74 bear market? Just as far as all the other major industries where companies weren't paying dividends. Paul, this is another comment. Paul, you must be paid by the mutual fund industry to draw your conclusions. Here are my rules to buy stocks. One, never listen to a security analyst for recommendations. Well, wait a minute. I, I, I can buy that. But that same security analyst would have no problem telling you which asset classes you should have. It's, it's in all the textbooks that any security anal ana analyst might read. And so I, I wouldn't be afraid to take a recommendation as to whether or not you should be in large cap growth or large cap value or whatever. If they're trying to get you to buy individual stocks, you might simply say, look, my odds are better if I go into a broadly diversified, let's call it massively diversified index fund. But um, uh, they, they might actually, if you ask them the right question, give you the right answer. Number two, buy any companies that are from your hometown and have been in business more than 10 years. God, of course, why didn't I think of that? That would include Washington Mutual. Well... Maybe not Washington Mutual. Number three, by the way, all the textbooks that I know of uh, uh, recommend that it is not a good idea to load up just on companies in your city. That you should have you should have uh, geographic <laughs> um, diversification as well as industry diversification. Number three. The stock must pay a dividend. I have no problem with, with that dividend-based portfolio. But just understand that historically, there are other asset classes that, just like dividend-based companies, lose money in bear markets, um, but go on to make a lot more money than the companies that pay dividends. There's good reasons for that. That does not suggest that companies that pay dividends or mutual funds that are built on companies that pay dividends, that it's a bad idea. It's a conservative idea. And remember how investing works. If you are smart about it, you take more risk, you get a better return. The key is knowing exactly what that risk might be. Of course, that's going to be based on, on, on history, but you should know that history. Here's another great comment. Okay, Paul, so your advice is I should liquidate my multi-million dollar portfolio and buy Powerball tickets. And people actually pay you for your advice? Well, my response to this person is simple. I... I did a terrible job of making my point. My point is that the odds of winning the lottery are not in your favor. Just as I mentioned earlier, 
the odds of active versus index. The active, unfavorable. And the same with large versus small and value versus growth, etc. But the point I make to young people is if you can figure out a way to get an extra 1%, and I try to show them how to get two over the rest of your life, that that difference will be a lot more than winning a million-dollar lottery. Comment. Coca-Cola, then in parens, KO, closed at $44.85 on Friday. Buy $45 worth of Coca-Cola and $45 worth of lottery tickets. Use whatever winnings you get from the lottery to buy more lottery tickets. Use any dividends you get from Coca-Cola to buy more Coca-Cola. Get back to me 10 years from now and let me know how these investments are working out. Obviously, I, I had to say I totally agree. But here's the inter- I'm, I mean, I'm I'm so happy that he used Coca-Cola as an example. Coca-Cola has compounded over the last 15 years at, at under 5%. That includes the dividend. Um, Coca-Cola has underperformed. When I, in a while, I'm going to be talking about the 15-year returns of, of a whole bunch of different asset classes. Coca-Cola did not do as well as the worst of those asset classes that I will mention. And I was recommending these asset classes 15 years ago, and I would have picked these asset classes over Coca-Cola any day. But here's what I'll I'll bet. I'll bet this investor has owned Coca-Cola for a long time. And he doesn't care, or she doesn't care, that it's been a pretty poor performer for the last 15 years. Because the bottom line is, he or she may have owned it for 50 years. And for many years, it was just great. And this is always the risk, whether it's Sears or Coca-Cola or any great company, that they can way underperform the long-term expectations. And when great growth companies underperform long-term expectations, it can be a long way down, and it can be a long time for the market to correct to all of the overpayment that people were making for that, that company when it was doing well. It's the difficult part about individual securities. Companies go flat or they simply get ahead of themselves in their pricing. I have talked in the past about Microsoft. In the year 2000, it sold for 60. I think today it's selling for 67 or 68. This is the history of investing. A great company in terms of price appreciation from 19, what was it, 86 to 2000, the end of 1999, 
but it's basically been a dog since then in terms of, yeah, I mean, it's done well. It went from 60 down to about $17 a share, if I remember. And now it's back up to 67 68 So somebody who bought it at 17 is fat, dumb, and happy. I mean, that's great. But when we look at the longer-term holding of that stock, it has not been a good stock for a long, long time. Comment. If you read enough financial articles, one begins to realize that most are flawed. This one is worse from the standpoint of pure nonsense. It doesn't even deserve further explanation. Readers should understand that these writers have to write anything. It's their job, and to do this job in a respectable manner takes time to properly research ideas and does not necessarily happen every working day sitting behind a desk. Well, what I had to say to this gentleman is I hope that you will read the study, the Besson Binder study, because... uh, Um, A lot of work went into that study. I think everybody in the industry that uh, follows and understands indexing is fascinated uh, by the idea that such a small number of companies made such a big difference. Somebody reminded me of those studies that show that if you missed over a period of 20 years, If you missed, maybe it was the 40 best days or the 20 best days that you'd end up with T-bill returns. That's a pretty important piece of information for people who are wanting to make sure that they get the long-term rate of return of the market. And there is at least some risk that when you leave the market for a period of time, you then miss some important rise, like the people who got out in the spring of 2009. Of course, some people think they can tell you which are the stocks that are going to be in that top 4%. Uh, I, I, I had the good fortune of putting a small amount of money into a company that compounded at over 30%. Um, over it was a long it was a long term holding, but including dividends and capital appreciation, uh, it was the best stock in my portfolio. Uh, the good news is that it happened. Um, the, the other thing that's important to note, I think, is that if I take that one stock out of my portfolio. Uh, I made less than S&P 500 returns uh, over the last 50 years. So uh, it's really fortunate that I had that one stock. I didn't put much money in it. I only put $15,000 in it. But if you try out what 30% a year for 30 years means on $15,000, it's a good number. But the bottom line is that I mentioned the good news is I owned it, 
The bad news is I have absolutely no idea how to pick another one because I had lots and lots of, of equally risky investments that went, went, went out of business and uh, you know, things we do when we're young. And the reason, by the way, that I only put a little bit of money in it uh, was because uh, I knew the risk that I would lose a lot was high. And what did I pass up to, to have that money to put it out? I passed up Microsoft. <laughs> I'd been much better off if I had purchased Microsoft and had been smart enough to get out in 1999. It looks so easy afterwards. Here's a fun comment. I believe that many Democrats and liberals sold their positions when Trump won, crying like little slow snowflakes and whining that Trump was president. And I would not be surprised if many of these folks are really regretting it, seeing how much the market has popped up and how the Republican investors have gotten loaded on the stocks, especially the Trump stocks. I have always said that it's more painful to see a stock rise without you than to lose a little and hold. Well, I just want to, I thought you would enjoy the first part of, the, uh, of, of his comment or her comment. But the last point that, that is made, I think, is, is a, a very interesting one. I think the, uh, the pain of seeing the market go up without you is spot on. Um, I, I think that's one of the reasons a properly diversified portfolio is so difficult for investors to accept. Now, you see, there's two ways you can see the market go up without you. One is you can simply, like so many who might have either been in cash since the spring of 2009 or were in cash because Trump got elected, I don't care why you're in cash, you were in cash. And the market took off and it left you sitting there in cash. And now not only has the market taken off, but you're wanting to get in the market and you just know as well as you know anything that the minute you get in, it's going down. But there is another trap. And it's in many ways, the, it's the most difficult one, I think, that that people following the kind of work that I do and so many advisors do, and that is to encourage people to have a broadly diversified portfolio. But you have to understand that even a well-diversified portfolio that's a, a, a mixture of big and small and value and growth and U.S. and international, or maybe even including some bonds, that it is not going to do as well as the S&P 500 in any year that S&P 500 is the best. And it will be the best. In fact, I don't know if there is an updated Callan um, uh, periodic table that shows how all of the major asset classes have done year by year over the last 20 years, but you'll see big and small and value and growth and emerging markets and, and, and bonds just 
jumping all over the place, not knowing what's going to happen the next year. But it's painful when the thing that everybody knows so easily, the S&P 500, is just storming along and you've got a, a diversified portfolio that is theoretically, theoretically much better than the S&P 500. One, based on historical information, but two, based on the fact that it's much more broadly diversified. But it feels terrible to be underperforming the market. And so I, I, I think that this, this person's comment is, um, is really good because it's, it's unfortunate, but that short-term underperformance has kept investors from producing and getting the returns they could have earned. And of course, that's so easy for me and everybody else to see what was best after the fact, as there is no risk in the past. We always know what we should have done. Now, before I move on to doing the DFA versus Vanguard versus the market, um, uh, comparison for the first six months and the last 15 years. I want to uh, take one more comment from MarketWatch. Uh, this reader says, MarketWatch tends to try to manipulate its readers. Uh, they sure tried hard during the run-up to the election last year, and despite all of their hopes and wishes, Trump did win to their surprise. They had called the markets to tank and fall based on Trump winning and, quote, boy, oh boy, end quote, they sure were wrong. Anyone listening to Market Watch would have gone short and they would be in mighty pain right now if they kept their positions. Now, first of all, in my response, uh, from everything I know about the past, I hope that you will never go short because all of the studies show that with few exceptions, shorting the market over time is truly a loser's game. That's number one. And number two, my problem is not with MarketWatch's particular I mean, I, I look at the headlines. In fact, sometimes I think I should just do a podcast where I read the headlines from one week. And it could turn you inside out emotionally because I can find you things that make people claiming the market's going up and here's why and other people claiming it's going down and here's why. That's what financial institutions that are living off of advertising do. It is their job to create a sense of need to know this information that's either going to make you money or keep you from losing. Their desire is for you, for, for them to be the source that people look to for information and reports on the market. CNBC would be of little value to viewers if they didn't line up dozens of experts every day to predict what's coming next. 
What if all they did was you sat down to watch your show? First thing you got to do is you watch a commercial. Right before the commercial, they say, and coming next, a brand new expert on index funds. And then you watch the commercial, and the expert comes on, and he tells you the 10 reasons you should so own index funds. Followed by more commercials, followed by more experts on index funds. No, that's not going to happen. Their job is to create interest in things that light up the brain, light up the, uh, the, the uh, whatever causes you to want to be there, stay there, be entertained. The interesting thing about Jack Bogle is he built a huge following by telling people they, referring to all the analysts and experts and whatnot, they don't know nothing. And I suspect long-term investors who took Jack Bogle's advice rather than the experts on TV and financial journals and books, etc., those people who took Bogle's advice have made much higher returns. Now I want to take a few minutes. This is a long podcast, I'm sorry, but I want to take a few minutes and talk about the performance of the uh, of DFA and Vanguard uh, and the average mutual funds for the first six months of the year as well as the last 15 years. I'm going to try to do this quickly. But I do want to make sure I make the the main points. First of all, I'm going to look at the six-month returns of the DFA asset class funds. Uh, For those of you who know that I'm also, along with Chris Pedersen and and Daryl Balls, trying to put together working on portfolios using ETFs, that will eventually, hopefully, come close to the returns of the DFA funds. But the DFA funds, that's what I own, my wife and I own in our portfolio, in the buy and hold part of our portfolio. But there's some very interesting things about the first six months. First of all, remember last year was a great year for small cap value? Made a lot of money. Anywhere from 25 to 30 plus percent. This year, for the first six months, small cap value down 1.9 percent versus the S&P 500 up 9.3. Now, large cap value, which you would expect to do better than than large cap blend, the S&P, made 5.8. So it underperformed by a lot. The REITs, which have historically done better than the S&P 500, were up two and a half. So it was a great year for the S&P 500 for six months to be up 9.3. That's a great return. But the rest of the U.S. uh, was way behind. Internationally, that's different. 
A large cap blend up 14. Large cap value up 10.4. Small cap blend up 16.4. Small cap value up 14.6. Emerging market blend up Large cap blend up 19.7, value up 17.4. That's emerging market value. Emerging market small cap, 17. Now, we know that internationals have, for years, been behind on compared to the U.S. market. Is this a turning point? I have no idea. I mean, this is why I have both U.S. and international in my portfolio, now it is interesting it is interesting to note the 15 year return the S&P 500 8.3 um, by the way Vanguard's 8.2 I'm looking at DFA versus Vanguard here um, DFA large cap value which should do better than the S&P 500, but didn't the first six months of this year, was 8.9. So it beat the S&P by uh, about six-tenths of 1% a year for 15 years. Vanguard was about 8.1. Small cap blend, 10.2 at uh, DFA, 9.9. At Vanguard, small cap value, the dog of the first six months of this year, 9.8 at DFA, 9.1 at, at, at Vanguard. Now, this is interesting because for 15 years, small cap value was actually made less than small cap blend, whether you're at DFA or you're at Vanguard. And the REITs that, remember, I said have done better historically than the S&P 500. Remember the S&P 500, 8.3. The REITs for the 15 years, 9.9. Actually, Vanguard's was 9.9 as well. Now, in the international markets, remember, this has been a long period of underperformance, particularly for the developed countries and particularly for large, because large in the U.S. has trailed, and so has large in the international markets. The uh, large cap blend 6.4, by the way, there's a case where Vanguard... One, it got 6.6. Large cap value at DFA, 7.2, 15 years, versus 6.7 at Vanguard. Now, Vanguard does not have a 15-year track record for either small cap blend or small cap value, but the small cap blend at DFA was 10.7, and in this case, the small cap value outperformed small cap blend 11.6 now Vanguard their large cap blend emerging market fund was up 10.1 versus the large cap blend emerging market at DFA 11.2 but DFA also has 
a value emerging market fund that compounded for 15 years at 12.7 and a small cap emerging market fund that compounded at 13.6. If you put the three of them together, large blend, value, and small cap with the DFA emerging markets, it would have been about a 12.5% compound rate of return, which would have been better than any of the U.S. asset classes. Um, So what do I know from this? Oh, well, remember, Vanguard didn't have a couple of asset classes, but for what we were able to do at Vanguard, the average fund was up 8.1, and the average fund at DFA was up 9.6, including U.S. and international, uh, over the uh, uh, the 15-year period. Not a horrific return, but certainly below historical expectations. Now, here's the part that is so interesting to me and so tricky. None of us expect to be average. So the fact that there's an average return, 15-year return for all funds in the same asset class as the S&P, all funds in the large cap value, all funds in the small cap blend, U.S. and international. Morningstar tracks that. So what do I see? I see that while, for example, DFA got 8.3 for the S&P 500, all of the, of the funds in that category averaged about 7.7%. Large cap value at DFA, 8.9 versus category average, 7.4. 10.2 for DFA for, for small cap blend versus average, 8.79. And it goes on and on and on. And in every case, I think it's absolutely, ah, yes, in every case, the average was less than either Vanguard or DFA. But let me put the frosting on the cake, or let me take the frosting off the cake, however you want to look at it. These category averages do not take into consideration survivorship bias. That is the way Morningstar looks at the, at the very long term. And they've got a reason for doing it. I don't know that it is valid. But here's what we know from studies that the if you take into consideration all of the funds that were in existence during this 15-year period, and you took the the category average, including the ones that, that went out of business. If you took all of them, the compound rate of return, depending, according to studies, can be anywhere from 1% to over 2% a year difference in long-term return. So that would suggest, for example, when I see that 
the small cap value fund at DFA compounded at 9.8, but the average in the Morningstar uh, average group in that category made nine. That means that probably the average category actually made something less than eight because the more volatile, less liquid the asset class, the bigger the impact in terms of survivorship bias. By the way, I, I just checked. Some of you know that I own a hedge fund. And uh, I've really been surprised. Hedge funds have had a, a terrible, terrible year this year. First six months, the returns were 2 3% on average in uh, most of the categories that, uh, uh, that are tracked. And the hedge fund that I used was up 10.5% for the first six months. And uh, the benchmark that it's competing with, index-wise, was up 98 uh, for a similar balance of large and small and U.S. and international, etc. I also thought it would be interesting to note, for those of you who uh, are following the uh, monthly income portfolio from Vanguard, that monthly income portfolio is made up of four funds. The Ginny May Fund up 1.1, the High Yield Bond Fund up 4.9, the Intermediate Investment Grade up 2.9, and the Short-Term Investment Grade up 1.5. Uh, not a bad return for uh, a period of time that people were afraid of these things losing money because of rising interest rates. Congratulations to those of you who made it. <laughs> uh, I sh probably shouldn't make them this long. In fact, I'd be more than happy to hear from you. If you uh, think I just uh, have gone too far or, and however long this is is too long, uh, let me know. Paul at paulmerriman.com. Always looking for topics that are on your mind and uh, appreciate you listening. Uh, if you've got a friend you think might benefit by this work, pass it on. Maybe this isn't the first podcast to send them, as it may be uh, too much to, to bear, but, uh, but, but, but do pass them on when you get a chance in the future. Thanks very much. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.